Gosh, there may be no doubt that the BRICS will be the dominant economies in 2050, but investors and businesses, it seems, want to explore new challenges and opportunities too. So staring at those stock market boards, where should you place your bets in the future? It might be useful if you learned a thing or two about the N11. No, not a road, but a new group of emerging economies. Let's let Anna Stupaniska, macroeconomist, executive director, Goldman Sachs Asset Management, tell you more. It sounds like a bus as well, the night bus. The next 11 is a group of countries um, which have the largest population beyond the BRICS. We came up with this acronym in 2005 in response to a lot of the questions from our clients, from investors, about which countries might have the BRIC-like potential in terms of overtaking the G7, in terms of challenging their consumer in terms of dominating the global landscape. So we looked at other countries, as I said, in terms of their potential to become large and in terms of their current population. So we came up with the next 11. It's a very diverse group of countries. Um, There are countries like Korea, Mexico, Turkey, which are already part of the OECD group of countries, so relatively developed. And there are some other countries on the other end of the scale, like Bangladesh, Nigeria, Pakistan, uh, Iran, the countries that are relatively poor, less developed in terms, of the, uh, in terms of their financial development or political conditions, etc. But it's this diversity that we think that is interesting to investors, and we think that investors can benefit from it. Now, Anna, you are the macroeconomist and executive director of Goldman Sachs Asset Management, so you're well-placed, if you like, to, to look back at the past 10 years and forward at the next 10 And you gave your conclusion that the BRICS had been the winner of the decade, but the next 10 would see dramatic changes. And you you showed graphs of changes in GDP from 2010 to 2019. So, first of all, BRICS clearly the winner of this decade, but the next decade, as you say, is going to be more diverse. Exactly. The most interesting thing and the most impressive aspect of the whole story is that the development of the BRICS is not over yet. Yes, we know uh, the BRIC countries, we know their importance, and the, but the last decade was more about people, investors, companies becoming more familiar with these countries and about realizing that they do exist. The next decade will indeed be about dramatic changes, uh, in our view at least. Um, BRICS will certainly add much more in terms of the GDP size to global GDP. We think they could uh, actually overtake the US, the G7 at some point in the next 10 or so years. We think China could overtake the US already by 2025, 2027. Now, What's interesting is that 
the BRICS consumer, that's the most interesting story that we're talking about, is going to dominate the global landscape. And this crossover, exactly when the BRICS consumer might challenge the U.S. consumer, will also happen in the next 10 years. So that's why we still talk about it. We still emphasize that the BRICS remains the most important story, the biggest story of the next decade, of the next several decades. There are some other countries that are important, but the BRICS indeed um, remain the biggest. So the largest economies in 2050 will be China, US, India, Brazil, Africa 11, Indonesia, Japan, Russia, Mexico, France, Germany, Turkey, UK, Nigeria, Philippines, Canada, Egypt, Italy, South Africa, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Korea, Vietnam, Pakistan, Bangladesh. The BRICS consumer will dominate too. Anna Stupaniska. And indeed, in your session, you sat on a panel with speakers talking about Turkey, Vietnam, Africa, beyond the sub-Saharan. That's the interesting thing, isn't it, about the, the symposium today? It's sort of bringing in a mix of other countries that haven't been talked about and may be thought of as outsiders, but are still going to be very important in terms of their growth, because who would have ever thought about Turkey or, or Vietnam, and we know Vietnam may be precarious, education's an issue there. Turkey has invested a lot in educating it, its population. But um, is that why you thought up that acronym of the N11? Uh, how we thought about the acronym? Well, we, we didn't want actually to come up with another acronym because uh, we used to get comments from people that BRICS is just uh, a marketing exercise, which is not true. And this event and many other events that uh, I speak at is, uh, is a testament uh, to this view that actually this is something more important, more significant than, than the marketing um, uh, exercise. Now, the next 11, we just uh, uh, decided that these countries will be important, will be big, um, and we, th there is no particular science behind it. But in terms of potential, uh, they will actually move the global landscape, uh, and we decided to call them next 11. Time to reflect on just why CBAM is so well-placed to get the analysts to come to these symposia and look into their crystal balls for us. The symposium heard from CBAM director Dr. Christos Patelis how the business people on its board picked the topics a year in advance. Andrew Morgan, president, Diageo Europe, is one of them. Yes, we've been very happy to, to support uh, CBAM. Indeed, it goes back to when we had a, a Guinness chair at the, at the business school. So the association with the university goes back uh, many, many years. I find that it's, it's quite a unique combination of academics and senior business people, and that's, that's it's very rare. And I find that I always learn something from these symposia in particular, and sometimes that comes from the academics because I don't... I don't make a point of getting in front of academics all that often. So this almost ensures that at least a couple of times a year I'm kind of hearing, you know, what the world look like, looks like from an academic sort of point of view. But also, you know, we get great business people along as well. But one of the things that Christos Pistelis, the director of CBAM, says, and he repeats it often, is that actually you in the business community on the CBAM board set the agenda for the conference because he joked that academics are five years behind the curve, you know, business is a, a couple of years ahead. So if you set the themes, that why the CBAM symposiums sort of just about get it right. They're, they're ahead and not trailing behind. 
Well, we have got rather a good track record of doing that. Yeah, I'm not sure that businesses could always claim to be a couple of years ahead. Obviously, looking ahead is part of what we do because we need to be ready to face the challenges of the future for our, for our businesses. But I do think in CBAM in particular, having the business people pick the topics actually has been has been very very successful and we've we've when you think that we have to kind of land on a topic roughly a year in advance there are times when we've actually managed to predict the sort of hot topics of the coming year extremely well taking a case study approach the symposium heard how diageo had turned the drinks market in turkey round to its advantage even though it's a muslim country Diageo wasn't frightened to step into this growing emerging market. Understanding government and regulators is essential. And when you are a global corporation, hedging your bets in many different emerging economies is essential too. Andrew Morgan again. Well, let's move to your presentation now, bringing emerging market strategy to life. A bit difficult to know if you're a business, um, where to put your bucks these days? China, India, Brazil. Then we've heard a lot of acronyms as well, haven't we, about Indonesia, Russia, uh, Turkey doing well. Goodness, how do you fathom it all out? Well, that's right. The latest one is the civets, which is the, the, the next group of emerging markets after the BRICS, I think. Is the I latest. thought they were baby swan cygnets or something. Uh, that's cygnets. Civets is another type of animal, I think, but it's, uh, it's rather irrelevant to this. But anyway, yeah, the simple matter is certainly a big consumer goods company like ours is, is constantly trying to find growth. And we have about two-thirds of our business in a combination of, of North America and, and Europe, Western Europe, which are essentially pretty much mature markets. And what we're looking to do constantly is move the profile of our business to more of a growth profile. And so you're seeing us invest in the emerging world. And the choice of which emerging countries or developing countries is, yes, you're right, that, that can get quite complex. But je- the general trend that we're looking to do is to move from, Diageo in particular, move from being sort of two-thirds of our business in developed markets to having only half of our business in the developed world and the other half in the, in the faster-growing emerging world. So you're there in the faster-growing emerging world, the so-called developing regions. You, you know, Are you worried at all about the volatility of those markets, China not democratising, India a large rural poor population, even Brazil? Um, it's not stability, perhaps, that business needs, but, but more somewhere... The, the, where the markets, the growth, the populations are going to want your products? Yes, I mean, I think we have the great advantage of being truly global. So we have, if you like, a, a portfolio, a hedged portfolio of geographies around the world. You know, and, and in any, any given time, you can be pretty certain some part of the world is having, you know, giving you some sort of problem. So we've, you know, we've had issues with our business in Venezuela recently, you know, but that's absolutely offset in other parts of the world where things are going swimmingly, like, you know, in, in, in Southeast Asia, uh, our African business has been uh, performing very well recently. So I think one of the ways that you can hedge 
and these risks in different, uh, you know, unpredictable sort of economies is to be in lots of them. And then, you know, generally speaking, our experience is that when when you when you get the aggregate, the total trend of all these businesses, it, it hedges itself rather nicely. Time for more reflection again now and to ask if all companies will succeed in a growing emerging market and how you go about pinpointing the risks and at what point in your business curve they're likely to become apparent. Alex Sukarivsky, associate partner, McKinsey and Company, Moscow, gives a few tips. There are some common fallacies too. Not all bricks are to be treated as one. I think, first of all, you need to consider the opportunity and see whether this opportunity fits your company ambitions, portfolio. And later on, see what are the risks and what are the practices running about these countries and see whether this is going to fit with what you believe is right. And on the later stage, once you decide to do investment or operate in emerging markets, I think you need to be serious about it and commit to these places. Indeed, you did have a very serious presentation, but you started by not just talking about challenging markets in the emerging markets, but the fallacies too. What are the fallacies? I think the four major fallacies that we see around, A, it's about the size of the opportunity, that many people don't believe in the emerging market, uh, comparing to the difficulties. Second thing could be around viewing all the bricks as one piece without really getting into the details and understanding what are the differences among these markets as well as things beyond brick. The fourth thing would be basically about uh, what are the challenges and ability to really understand those challenges and not to compare them to something that we come from the West, as well as view the four last one on the innovation and ability of emerging markets and emerging market entrepreneurs uh, to innovate. And, and presumably you've got to dig down quite deep into those emerging markets and know what's going on. You know, in terms of retail, you've got to know sort of where you're likely to get your returns and in what time scale. It's, it's very much depends on the country and very much depends on the particular situation or retail format. So I think you couldn't generalize here, but you could definitely see based on the research from the FMCG companies that the companies whose most of the portfolio was in emerging market did better on average on their growth momentum versus their peers whose portfolio was mostly focused on existing established mature markets. And so those emerging markets, the next 10 countries after BRICS, you said would drive significant growth. And do you agree? We've heard lots of acronyms today, you know, sort of the N11, you know, which countries and where they're going to be in the league table 10, 20 years' time. But what's your philosophy on this? And what are the next 10 countries and how will they drive that growth? Based on our global research, uh, what we found out that looking forward, it's going to be growth roughly around 4.7 trillion USD into developing economies. Out of them, 70% come from BRICS, 70% of China. And later on, if you think about the next 10, the growth is going to come something like 20% of this amount. And I mean here Poland, Mexico, Turkey, South Korea as the major countries. And then there is Argentina, Indonesia, Thailand, South Africa, Philippines and Cambodia. So pen and paper in hand, jot down these points. Does the opportunity suit your company portfolio? What are those risks? How serious are you about committing resources to these markets? Alex Shukarivsky again. 
Now, one of the interesting things you, you looked at was you said supply chain management, but also the structure, the people employed in, in these companies. And we had that lovely little diagram of everybody in a blue overall and, and all with a job title, but actually the business wasn't competitive. Uh, do clients, when they come to you, need to know about how to, if you like, shape a business, the shape of the organisation, and when it tips into profitability? I think it's extremely important what you could see from our research. One of the major concerns across the market was the talent and the ability to get this talent trained and retain the talent. And I think that's the way, if we look across the company, one of the key success factors. And companies definitely need to pay attention to uh, this dimension of their business and really focus the effort to get best and the brightest. I think the Edger case was talking about it. They have a strong local management team that's ready to drive business going forward. And so if I gave you £20 and said, take it to the bookmakers and place a bet for the next 20 years, where would you, you invest your money? I'm not into the betting business, therefore, we do analysis and very much depends on your investment profile. There are always those outsiders who step into any arena and turn the apple cart upside down. Over one of those special college CBAM dinners, Dr John Holtzman set about elbowing the BRICS concept out of the way. And he did it with such panache. Well, it's a very clever idea in the short run in that the rise of the rest is a real thing. The headline of our lifetimes will be this is a 500-year shift in power away from Europe and America. Absolutely, and that's what everybody's said for years. But... Um, to make this concept the holy mantra of where we go is d- desperately misleading. Uh, let's start with one thing. Russia shouldn't be part of this group for a variety of reasons. One, um, it economically isn't doing as well as the others. Two, it's not a manufacturing country like the others. Three, it has tremendous demographic problems. Uh, Russian men have a problem with alcoholism. The actual age of Russian men has decreased since the Cold War by 10 years, unheard of demographically, and corruption and rule of law problems. Russia is not a good bet other than oil and natural gas on anything. And well, so what about China then? Because Brazil's the only one that's taken its poor up to the middle classes, and, and China's equally vulnerable. Yeah, China's vulnerable, but again, it has a bigger base on um, issues of... Ex- they have internal problems with corruption, but externally, in terms of the exports, far less. Um, China's going to make it. The question is on what terms, which, which you're implying, which is right. Uh, Brazil has done very, very well with their middle class. Bolsa Familia has been a tremendous success. Uh, the problem for Brazil is geographic. It's surrounded by economic basket cases. To me, the future will be the Indian Ocean Rim in China, which isn't just China, or even primarily China. It's South Africa. It's the Gulf states. It's Malaysia. It's Singapore. It's India. It's Australia. Um, and then China as well. This is a region that is partly democratic, partly pluralistic, partly authoritarian. Everything is to play for. But to pretend that the world is this neat conceptual thing rather than a geographic reality uh, is to miss the point. What excites me about the Indian Ocean Rim, one of the things, is the democratic nature of both South Africa and India, um, which in the long run I think is the best bet for stability, as we were talking about. Um, and so China has brilliant leadership, doing very well, but frankly, if they don't grow at 8% a year, the leaders are candid that they're out. So he doesn't like Russia, despite its oil and natural gas reserves, but he puts in his good books the Indian Ocean Rim and China too. Stable democracies help, and contrary to what you've heard, distance does matter. Here's Holzman again to tell you more, but we did challenge him on those sound bites. 
Yeah, so we're lumping together things that don't fit. I'm cribbing yes. from your talk. But actually, we're constructing these economic models. And we've heard presentations from people today here at the CBAM Global Symposium for the Cambridge Judge Business School that people need models. They need to feed in information. They need to feel that it all fits, and they invent acronyms. Um, is that just what it is, an invention, when we're going to in, into in uncertainty? I believe all that, but I, again, I do think models matter. But then the key point that I think you're raising is it's important to get the model right. The problem with the brick model is that once it tells me the world is multipolar, it doesn't tell me anything else. What does that mean? Are all poles equal? Well, no. The United States is still dominant, but it's, it's declining. How do you fit that into the model? You don't. Nobody's ever talked about that. What about the S? Does South Africa count or not? Well, it's not very clear from what they said originally. You have to drill down. It made one initial point, and from that, they're trying to construct a religion. I love this notion that distance doesn't matter. Ask the border guards in China and Pakistan and in India if borders matter. They, they matter a lot. Ask the people who live around the South China Sea, which is claimed by every major Asian country, if they matter. They matter a lot. This is how we get into trouble in the world, by pretending things aren't what they are, as you suggest. The fact that India... You say it's Alice in Wonderland. It's totally Alice in Wonderland. Pretending the distance doesn't matter totally negates what the Chinese and Indians, the two major rising powers, think. So distance matters. It really does matter. Fundamentally. I mean, if you look at the Chinese and Indian concerns, they have almost everything to do with distance. It's arguments in the South China Sea with the neighbors who live next door, distance mattering. It's India and China arguing over vast swaths of territory where their borders intersect. It's Pakistan and India or, or arguing over Kashmir. To pretend these things don't matter, it might make sense in a social science laboratory or in Alice in Wonderland, but it doesn't make sense at all to the people who are now rising in the world, being next door to another neighbor, you compare and contrast what you're doing with what they are. It's innate, it's human, it's gone on since the beginning of time, it will go on for the rest of time. And that's where, again, geography is fundamental and it's been left out of the equation. We have to put it back in, or as you say, we're going to end up with concepts that have very little to do with reality. After deconstructing the bricks and beyond, how about reconstructing it again? Jack Keenan, CEO, Grand Crew Consulting, says he has no doubt China will be the number one economy by 2050. Even a few hiccups won't derail its march to the top. Well, actually, you know, CBAM and Christos have done it again. Bricks and Beyond is brilliant because it really captures the swing from the established Western countries to the countries that are now growing at a very fast pace, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and beyond, the next 11 that are coming up. It was especially great to have the conference kicked off by Sir Leslie, Vice-Chancellor of Cambridge, who has a terrific appreciation of the subject matter and gave an inspiring introduction to our session. But really, it's all about future growth and how businessmen are going to be growing businesses in these new geographies. But, but do you think that perhaps we've placed too much emphasis on the BRICS in the past decade? They've done phenomenally well. But are they going to be what we thought they might be in the next decade? Or are these all these other countries in Indonesia, elsewhere, even Turkey, going to come into the mix as well? Well, the next 11, as I called them, uh, people like Turkey... Uh, people like Colombia will certainly play a part, but it'll be so much less in terms of total absolute growth. I mean, the the four BRICs are going to outstrip the the growth of both the developed countries today 
and the next 11 will never even get close to catching up. I mean, we've only begun to really find our, uh, our, our business feet in these BRICS countries. We're just learning how to deal with them, and they're learning how to deal with the West. But they are the engine of GDP growth for the next, well, people are talking about until 2050. An interesting year. I'll be 113 years old then. Yeah, we, we almost need to sort of hang up our shoes and hand over to the next generation. But look, in typical Christos Patelis fashion, he is the director of CBAM, and we know how closely he worked with academics and those grounded in industry itself like you. But, but we heard from, uh, actually, uh, Dr. John Holzman uh, elbowing the BRICS concept out of the way, basically saying, well, look, you know, the BRICS aren't as strong. Let's deconstruct them. They've got problems, structural problems. They've, they've got problems with their growth, their populations, their democratization. Things aren't quite what they might seem. Dr. John Holtzman was tremendously entertaining over dinner. And uh, I think he, he was brilliant at deconstructing the bricks and separating them and moving us to a geopolitical concentration on China and India. But really, you can't take Brazil out of the equation and you can't take Russia out of the equation. I mean, he was brilliant in how he did the deconstruction, but I must suggest that you still need the brick to make the wall. If you have got a hard-headed company like Diageo yeah. investing in the emerging markets, they seem to be hedging their bets. So if you, if you like, they're in Turkey, but they're also in many other economies, and that's what gives them their strength and confidence. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank Andrew and Diageo for sponsoring Bricks and Beyond. I mean, it was fabulous having the world's leading drinks company sponsoring this conference for us. I wouldn't say that Diageo is hedging his bets. I would say that Diageo set out a single-minded strategy of recognizing the reduced growth in their established markets in Western Europe and single-mindedly beginning to grow with acquisitions in China, in Turkey, in Vietnam, possibly in Central and Eastern Europe. And Andrew was showing us a chart that was quite dramatic where he showed the slowdown and the decline of his Western European business offset by what he's bought in Turkey in one year. Very exciting. Okay, final question before you go to the dinner, Jack, but I've got £20 in my pocket. I'm giving it to you. You're going down to Ladbrokes. Where are you going to place that bet for 2050 and those emerging economies? Okay, I'm going to take your £20. I'm going to put £10 on Diageo and £10 on Nestle because they are best positioned to grow in the emerging markets as global brands. And that will still be the BRICS. Yes, the BRICS. It's a brave heart that steps into the future and a brave heart which does so when the world's economies and democracies are so volatile. But within that volatility lies those challenges and opportunities that the CBAM Global Business Symposium on BRICS and beyond explored so thoroughly. Thanks went to all, particularly Diageo, the sponsors. Time to take that £20 down to the bookies, but you may not be around to collect your potential winnings. After all, 2050 is a long shot for many. Music 